You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We are making a big emphasis right now in this season um, on city groups. Um, and if you're here uh, on any normal given time or season or Sunday, uh, we typically like to go through whole books of the Bible uh, to read through them exegetically and to read them um, uh, holistically um, as their original intent, kind of trusting that God will speak to us in the timing that he needs to as we read the, the Bible as, as it was written uh, book by book. And so our next series will be in Genesis. Um, the title of that series will be God and Man. It'll be several segments of the series. We'll get through Genesis 1 through 11 by Christmas. It'll be talking about the topics of creation, uh, fall, salvation, and covenant, major themes throughout the Bible. And it, it, it dawned on me, you know, like when you watch a television show, sometimes they'll have this break in the show and they'll go back to the origins of a character. Have you ever seen that before? A lot of powerful narrative that goes on when they stop. They free, freeze frame the story, and before moving forwards, they move backwards, and they look at the origin of the character, the origin of the intent, the origin of the story or the relationship, and that's very much what Genesis is. Genesis just means beginnings. It means in the beginning, and so we'll be spending um, uh, the rest of the, this year in Genesis following this uh, last couple sermons on discipleship, and then we'll jump back into Genesis in the spring to look at the life of uh, Abraham and his descendants. So it's going be a powerful time, and I'm excited about it. Uh, let me pray once more, uh, and we're going to do um, just a quick conversation here on discipleship. So, um, Jesus, I just thank you. Man, so many gifts on display on this stage this morning, from worship to uh, leadership to communication to shepherding to pastoral care, and um, I'm just thankful that um, your church is a body, not a crowd. Um, and I just ask that you would just equip and you would uh, ignite and activate, God, your body, um, that, that we would learn to, um, to serve one another well, that we would sharpen one another, that we would help each other look more like you. And, uh, and God, that um, when, when people um, in our world and in our day would look at, at the church, they would see a reflection of your image of the headship of Christ. And so uh, we trust you in that. We just ask that you would move and, and you would provide for those steps as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a question today. Uh, you're going to turn to your neighbor and, and ask this question. Don't talk for too long. I'll cut you off in about 90 seconds. Somebody comes to you and says, I don't know anything about Jesus. I don't know anything about church, but I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a disciple. Today, the topic is not what is a disciple. Today, the topic is the process of becoming a disciple. We want to ask ourselves, what does the process of becoming a disciple look like? If we're going to be clear on what a disciple is and be clear that that is the primary target and objective of why our feet are still on the earth, why we're not in heaven today, is to go and make disciples and multiply disciples. We'd want to be clear on what a disciple is, but we'd also want to be clear on how disciples are made. And so I just want to toss the question to you to talk to your neighbor just briefly, uh, kind of open up a can of worms because it's kind of a more difficult conversation, I think, than we, than we think at, at first glance. But somebody comes to you and you've got to give them the elevator speech. What do you tell them? What's their modus operandum? What, what are they going to need to be doing what do they need to understand? What do they need to know? What do they need to do? If you had to meet with them in an elevator for a couple seconds, what would you tell them? How do you follow Jesus to look like him? Uh, why don't you turn to your neighbor? Um, you don't have to have the whole answer, but what would be some of the things you might say to a person in the elevator to answer the question, what does it mean to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? And five, four, three, two, one, go.
We'll do 30 more seconds. And smile and nod. Give them a fist bump. Um, last week, if you were here, we began a, a conversation called uh, Defining Discipleship. There'll be one more um, session of that next week that focuses on how we make disciples at City Lights from a plan and action standpoint. Last week, we talked about what is a disciple, what is the definition of a disciple, and today we're talking about what is discipleship, what is the process of becoming that kind of a person. So if we get the definition up on the screen, the last week we talked about a disciple is somebody who is following Jesus to look like him. A disciple is somebody who, um, who continually repents and believes. The verse in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Jesus' primary message was not to beam you up to go to heaven one day when you die, but today the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is the primary message. And we, we went back to Genesis and we talked about uh, the original intent of God's design for man and for woman was to be imago Dei, to be image bearers, and to not only have deep, uninterrupted relationship with Jesus, but to represent him completely, to do what he would do if he were them. That's what his, their, their whole job was, to fill the earth with his glory and multiply um, who they were on the earth. And that was God's plan for creating and then filling the space that he created. And so um, Adam and Eve's original sin uh, caused them to fall short of that, and Jesus came back to return to them, not, again, a destination to go when we die, but return to them and to us, his disciples then and now, this invitation to get everything back from the garden, to have restored intimacy, restored identity, and restored authority. And so this is what the life of Jesus, if I could get the picture up of the up, in, and out, um, begins to take form and shape as we read the aggregate of the Gospels. Um, many of us, uh, all of us, are prone to read portions of the gospel, the parts that we like, um, and follow Jesus in those parts and thereby sometimes get stuck in our strengths, whether that be feeding the poor or hospitality or being nice or being learned or um, uh, healing people or worship. There's different parts of uh, Jesus that we follow. Uh, but as we saw uh, in the gospels, those fishermen had no choice to follow him on one day and not on the other day. They either had to drop their nets and follow him all days or no days. And when you look at the snapshot of Jesus' life, there was a lot of things that he did, but all of them revolved around one simple message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so through this immersion experience, not through a classroom experience or informational or um, uh, a seminary experience, through this immersion experience, um, Jesus' followers um, begin to wrap their lives around really not just his words, but also his ways in his work. Pretty immediately, um, the disciples are invited off the sidelines of life and into the ministry of Jesus and invited continually to repent and believe in sink or swim situations. They were not invited into a classroom. They were invited into an immersion experience that continued to allow them to learn, repent, believe, repent, believe, repent, believe, so that by the time that Jesus left and spoke the message that it'd be better that I go, that the Holy Spirit would dwell in you and you do greater things than me, then Paul and John and Peter, these disciples, are not just disciples. They are now apostles, and they are not just Beggars pointing other beggars towards the bread, but they, in fact, walk with the identity, authority, and intimacy of Jesus. The complete kingdom come in their life as their life was wrapped around the words and the ways and the works of Jesus. 
And so the three great loves, as the videos you guys remembered, um, and by the way, I also agree with Kyra. I didn't like the fact that the little lady is just chilling in the background because women are daughters and they need to go be kingdom bringers too, and they're not just chilling back there. So I just want to make that note. But other than that, I thought the video was swell um, in that there was these three great loves that following Jesus isn't just um, following him to where we want to go or get to. Following him is following him to the places that he loves and lives. And that is three places. Intimacy with his father. It was as his custom that he would continually, not on accident but on purpose, go up to the mountain to the pray and find an isolated place to be with his father. This was the devotional centerpiece of his life. But he didn't just stay there in the upper room. And he didn't just stay there in the prayer room. And he didn't stay huddled in the corner. No, he went down the mountain and spent more than 50% of his time rebuilding family, rebuilding community. It wasn't just about a mission of getting people into heaven when they die. It was, a, it was creating a kingdom culture within the, the family of God, restoring the intimacy that Adam and Eve once had before they were shamed and had to put on uh, garments. And so there was this, this, there was this rebuilding of intimacy, of life on life with his disciples. But he didn't just stay in a holy huddle. No, his pattern, his love, his life brought him into the lost and the broken world, bringing authority with him. And instead of the darkness creeping up and encroaching on the light, he would bring authority and kingdom and light back out into the broken places. And so the video challenged us in this really great way. He says, a lot of times we like one or maybe two of these things, but usually there's a third one that becomes a weakness of ours. And the temptation is to stay in our strength rather than become disciples and learners, to be led out into something that's weak and uncomfortable for us. Uh, 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 and our temptation is to stay in one of the three different patterns. But Jesus' life forces all of us all the time into the uncomfortable place to change, to repent, to believe, to become like him. And so today we want to ask ourselves this question that will be on the screen again. What is discipleship? What is the kind of relationship that would help us follow Jesus, not to look like us or to create God in our image, but to return back to the image he created us to be, which is the image of Jesus, the complete representation of God. What, is it, what, is, what kind of a relationship would nurture, would incubate, would challenge, would provoke, would cause that thing to happen on purpose? That is the answer to what is the question of discipleship. So I asked my friend uh, Greg, uh, who, uh, Greg and Liz, are you all here today? I don't know if you are there. There's Liz back there, and Greg's kind of two seats back there. They are also city group leaders. They'll be up here next Sunday to introduce themselves and uh, some of their lovely family, which would be fantastic. Ask Greg uh, if I could share some of the story, not keeping some of it just kind of uh, private, but then some of it just um, to share with you that you'd be you know, encouraged. But I'd known Greg and Liz for quite some time uh, through City Church, a church that I used to attend and work at. Um, and uh, they actually served with me at youth, and Liz uh, used to lead worship, and uh, we had a lot of common bonds there from Clemson and, and FCA, and some, some of you guys might have crossed paths with them as well. Um, but I, I hadn't seen Greg and Liz for a while, and when I ran back into him, uh, basically through getting connected here at City Lights, I kind of caught up with his life over the last couple of years. And, um, and honestly, Greg, I mean, even before you know, hearing kind of uh, some of his story over the last couple of years, I could sense a difference and a change in him um, even before he even told me of what had gone in the last five years. And, and come to find out, as he shared uh, some of the things that had gone on in the last time that I talked to him, there was a lot that really changed around him and in him. Uh, it was a few years ago. I don't have the exact timeline down, but there was this like crisis point in his life. Uh, that revolved around just like a particular just pattern and, and, and sin, really, um, in his life that he's very open with. And at men's group sometime, you could sit down, or on Thursdays at lunch, you could sit down and, and ask him about that. It's a really powerful story. Um, but this crisis point brought him to, and this is a vocab word of the day, this crisis point brought him to this kairos point in his life. 
Kairos just means uh, God's timing. We have a chronos time, but when Jesus returns, uh, and when Jesus comes and calls the disciples, says the kairos time, the, the, the heaven time, the, this time that is um, going to change and shape the way that things happen down here, this window of kairos time has allowed the kingdom of heaven to come near, repent, and believe the good news. So the kairos time is available for all, but the people that experience God's time, his power, his authority in this moment are the ones that are going to repent and believe. And so there was this, this, this crisis point that was leading Greg into this Kairos point. And, uh, and so it involved a lot of counseling. It involved a lot of work, to be honest. Um, it involved a lot of change. It was a crisis moment that, that took his attention, that delivered him into this Kairos moment. Um, and it put his, uh, his, his, his physical life you know, at stake. It put his, his relational um, ties at stake. It put his marriage at stake. It put um, just everything, his health, everything was, was, was at stake because of this point. And what, what the world was offering as a crisis moment, God was interrupting as a kairos moment. And he was calling Greg, as he calls all of us, not just in the crisis points, but in the still small moments, to repent and believe, to not leave God's presence unchanged, to follow him and not run from him, to repent and believe and follow Jesus to become like him. And so uh, it's a great Dallas Willard quote, uh, which we used Dallas Willard last week as well. But the Dallas Willard quote um, about discipleship is that, you know, the gospel, although it is completely opposed to earning, is not opposed to effort. You know, Paul would say that we are in our sanctification. That's the fancy word for discipleship, of becoming like Jesus. There is a, um, a working out our salvation with fear and trembling, he would say. He would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy, for example, that becoming godly or training in godliness is a lot like three things. A farmer that's working in the field, which is a lot of work. Uh, an athlete training for a race, which is, again, a lot of work and challenge. And um, a soldier that's training for the army. And so this idea of, of, of kairos, it, it doesn't just involve our mind and our heart. It involves our entire life. It involves this, this reorientation that Greg would sit down and, and tell you about. And so if you, if you talk to him, I mean, in the last couple of years, it wasn't just um, counseling, which it was. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it was not about, you know, the circumstances of life that were, that were causing this fluctuation to happen within, within Greg's life and heart. It, it, was, it was the truth of God stirring him to see God and see himself in a different way. He told me that the counselor had brought him to the passage in Corinthians where Paul talks about being, uh, God being strong in weakness. And so ultimately, it really wasn't about the sin issue at all. That was just a symptom that deep down there was an identity truth exchange that needed to happen where a lie was displaced for a truth. And so what is discipleship? Discipleship or being a disciple is following Jesus everywhere he goes. And when he has a different opinion than ours, when a kairos moment invades our our chronos time, and he interrupts our schedule, then we have two options. We can either run from him or repent towards him. And a disciple is somebody that chooses the latter. The disciple is somebody that follows towards Jesus. So we come back to this question again. We come back to this question again. What kind of relationship would be needed for us to follow Jesus to look like him? Because the kairos moments, they can be, they can be very scary. You know, people say that to follow the voice of God is to follow your peace. And that depends on how you define peace because sometimes you can see Jesus speaking to us and he speaks in very calming and we'll go through some of these passages later in peaceful and reassuring ways. But sometimes Jesus is a provocateur. He, is, he, he provokes things. Sometimes Jesus interrupts things. Sometimes we're heading this way and we're thinking this is where peace is heading us. And sometimes Jesus knocks on the door and interrupts us and tells us to go a completely different way. And, and again, we'll go through some of the passages of what that looks like and sounds like. But, but when God stops us in our tracks... And, and he, he interrupts 
our, our day-to-day rhythms. When we see a scripture for the first time and it challenges us, we have an opportunity to run or repent. When, when, when something that's working in our marriage that has been going on for 5 or 10 or 20 years, something changes within that marriage, maybe it's the children move away or maybe a job changes or maybe something, a circumstance changes with one of the two spouses, then what happens is that God is, is opening up a window for a change in our lives. And the question is, will be, we will be ready or will be available for that change? And in discipleship, what we need to ask ourselves is, what are the kinds of relationships that we are going to need around us? In Greg's story, for example, uh, and if, in your story, I'm sure you've walked through things like this, it becomes a very tight budget for the types of people that we can have around us when we're going through a season like that. Greg's story, a lot like ours, can't afford when we're in Kairos moments like that to be around shame-driven uh, uh, relationships. We can't afford to be around people like that uh, because, um, because this is a time of frailty, of, of maybe uh, disruption, a, a place where there is shaky ground, where there once was security. Uh, a time when we need to be challenged and called up out of our past. We can't afford to have different kinds of relationships of apathy where uh, somebody might say, well, that's not such a big deal and, you know, just kind of like everybody's kind of, that's just the way that the world is and you don't necessarily, you know, change based on just this one little thing and maybe it'll just all go away on its own. No, when we get into Kairos moments like this, we have to have very intentional, specific people around us, specific relationships around us that help us to repent and believe. And so that, again, is the question. What kinds of relationships, what kinds of relationships do you have and what kind of relationships are you stewarding in your life that are helping you to run towards Jesus and not away from him? So here's the passage that we're going to look at uh, today. Um, Matthew chapter 16, I think, kind of shows uh, a template for what a kairos moment looks like, but also shows a template for how Jesus stewards a kairos moment for one of his disciples, Peter. And so you've probably heard this passage before. In fact, we taught on it last year, uh, but I think it does offer a snapshot for what it looks like to repent and believe um, and what it looks like to uh, come around and disciple and nurture somebody who is in the middle of that kind of kairos season. Matthew 16, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus turns to Peter, who is a representative of the other disciples, kind of like their spokesperson, and he turns to them and he says, yeah, I know that, but who do you say that I am? So, again, a Kairos moment, like, it doesn't have to be somebody, like, dying in your life. It doesn't have to be a big crisis. Matter of fact, I've heard somebody say that God speaks to us lots of different ways, and the number one way he'd like to speak to us this morning is through his scripture. Alongside that is his spirit. Alongside that is community. Alongside that is following um, just our peace from an internal perspective. And probably the last thing he'd like to speak to us through is our circumstance. And so I've heard people say, not saying that we only experience crisis when we don't follow Jesus, but I have heard people say with, with good reason that sometimes the reason why we run into crucial, critical crisis points is because God's already spoken to us long, long ago and we haven't been listening and now we've run into natural consequences. Not that God causes that kind of thing as a punishment, but that he does allow for natural consequences to hit our life. And so Kairos moments are just still small moments. They're just moments where you see something that totally changes your paradigm. Maybe you see a miracle that somebody uh, experiences, and you've got your brain in this other category that says miracles don't happen anymore. Well, now you've got a Kairos moment to deal with. 
And again, this leads into the question, who are the people around you that are going to nurture or inhibit that Kairos moment? Maybe it's, uh, you, you know, you, you see something happen for the 55th time and you go, maybe this isn't an accident. Maybe this is a character habit that needs to get addressed. Maybe it's something that you've gotten caught with and you've been doing it over and over again and then finally somebody catches you and now you're in this Kairos moment. There's this revelation that's going to uh, speak into the information maybe that you have from Scripture, but now it's going to become real and personal and intimate to you because it's a revelation to you. Maybe that's your Kairos moment. And we're all experiencing these things, but, but this is what, what happens with Peter. You see, Jesus, he turns the theology and the theory into revelation and personal uh, interaction and conversation. And so in Bible study, you know, like we can talk about theory and theology, but all of that only comes to a head when Jesus looks directly at us and says, what do you have to say about that? And that's what Kairos moments do. We all have the right answers until we get into life and have to face the truth of that answer. That's what a Kairos moment will do. It will pull you off of the fence of speculation and cause you, are you in or are you out? These are these gut-checking realities of a Kairos moment. I mean, this is what Greg would tell you. This is when your faith becomes real. This is when your feet hit the ground. This is when it stops becoming about a nice, you know, Jesus calling post that we put on Instagram and actually becomes an in or out moment. And so that's, that, that's, that's the opportunity that Jesus offers, you know, Peter. He's like, yeah, I know what they all say, but this guy that you're following, either I'm God or I'm not. What do you have to say about that? This is the provocative side of Jesus. This is the challenge side of Jesus. He doesn't allow for this kind of speculation. And so Simon Peter answers. I mean, he casts his lot. This is really what we believe. This is the, the inner sanctum moment. It's not just what we say we believe. It's like, my feet tell me what I believe. I'm following you, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're not just a messenger. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a good guy. You're the one this is all about. And I'm following you. And Jesus said, well, you just drew a line in the sand for yourself. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You know, there's a lot of um, talk these days about uh, why, you know, upward basketball and handing trophies out to everybody is a bad idea, and why it's enabling kids and, and kind of uh, entitling kids to, to success. And... Um, and I think uh, there's an invitation in these passages, and I reflected on some of these other interactions that Jesus has with disciples and people that are outside the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't seem to be too bashful or scared to, uh, to speak identity over uh, somebody that's following him before they actually do it. I want you to consider this for a second. When Jesus spoke to uh, the prostitutes that he had uh, in his life, to the poor that he had around his life, uh, when, when he spoke to his disciples, did he speak to them based on potential or based on proven? When he speaks to Peter in this interaction, who has done nothing really so far of any type of fruit or value towards the kingdom of God, he has barely scratched the surface even on identifying who God is. You have, to, you have to ask yourself the question, is Jesus speaking to him when he calls him the rock on which the church will be built, that all authority will be given on heaven and earth to bind and loose things down here as though they were in heaven? When he gives him that speech, is it based on potential or is it based on proven? You see, a lot of times I think we have this tough love scenario where we think that the best thing that we can do is really speak down towards people when we disciple people or call out sin the first time that we meet them or give them the bad news before we give them the good news. This does not seem to be Jesus' MO. And I understand uh, all the statistics and why we think that that cultural phenomenon has uh, weared away and you know, eroded our, our, our culture. But Jesus does not seem to be bashful of recognizing 
who somebody is before stumbling over who they're not. And so there's two words that uh, make up the definition of what we want to talk about, how to be a disciple and make a disciple. But discipleship involves two things, and the first one is invitation. The second one is challenge, but the first one is invitation. And we see that Jesus has a high invitation for the people he talks to. He says, hey, you, I don't know you from Adam. What are you, uh, 15, uh, uneducated, can't read, don't know anything, probably haven't been to synagogue in a while. Why don't you come be like God for a minute? Why don't you come be a fisher of man? Not unproven, but on potential. He is not afraid or ashamed to call people out, to see the gold in somebody despite the dirt around them, and to call out the identity. Jesus, Jesus was not ashamed or abashed to call out somebody based on their potential of the Holy Spirit empowering and equipping them before they ever proved to do anything for them, for him or with him. It goes on to say, though, in, the, in this Kairos moment as it elaborates in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples to tell anyone, not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, Peter's feeling pretty good. I mean, he went to church. He got his praise on. He heard God speak to him about who the character of God is. He spoke back to him what his identity was going to be. He's got it rolling. He is a high-class kingdom individual. He is ready to go take mountains. He's ready to go move mountains. He's ready to go move in faith. He's ready to go build up the church. He is, I am ready. But what Peter thinks... Uh, and doesn't know is that uh, is that Jesus has started the Kairos but not finished it, and sometimes we uh, we take words out of the oven and we think that they're done but they're not done yet, and he's still teaching, and maybe that's a word for some of us today, but Jesus has an invitation moment for him and the other disciples. Remember, he's a representative of the others, but then he has a challenge moment with him, and this continues on in verse 21. After the ministry of Caesarea Philippi, we really see that the downward trek towards Jerusalem is much different than the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And the come and see message turns into a come and pick up your cross message. And that the kingdom of heaven that everyone is expecting to overturn the Romans is actually uh, less of a political movement and more of a spiritual movement of surrender. That the kingdom of heaven invites all co-heirs to come and rule with him. But that only comes in form and function as we surrender our will to him even towards, um, towards even physical death and, and, and surrender and sacrifice. And so this is what Jesus says as a kind of preliminary um, a preview of where they're headed into. He says, from that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things. You see, a student is not better than his master, and if they hated the master, they'll hate the students too. And so there is a very quick and easy um, application to everything that Jesus is saying in the minds of the disciples. He's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on that third day and raised to life. And so just like Jesus is not scared or, or um, cautious to call, call up and call out the, uh, the gold, the potential, the value within the disciples that he, that he is he's leading along on this journey, he is also not afraid to call out the challenge and uh, the suffering and sacrifice that they will uh, face in the future. Matter of fact, all of the last third of Matthew um, is, is littered with parables that are all about uh, counting the cost of discipleships. In other words... Um, in Chinese cultures in some places, uh, the, the reason and the rationale is don't tell the elderly if they're sick and dying because what good does it do to know that something bad is coming, right? That's the, the, the theory there is don't tell people that things are going to get worse because it only ruins their spirits. But Jesus seems to go, 
uh, in the face of that and do the exact opposite. He's going, if you get in the middle of this thing, I don't want your wicks to get too short. That was one of the parables, if you remember. I don't want you to be unprepared. Uh, you get halfway into this thing and then start to feel like maybe I'd let you down. No, I want you to know all the way up front who I'm calling you to be and how I'm challenging you up to be that person. I want you to know all the way up front that I've called you no less to be a co-heir with me in the kingdom of God. You are bringing his rule and authority all the way back to Genesis into this place, the here and now. But I want you to know the cost up front. I want you to know that, uh, Peter, they're going to lead you to where you don't want to go. I want you to know the sacrifice. I want you to know the cost that's going to take place. So Peter, in his flesh, responds to this. And he says, uh, he takes him aside, he rebukes him, he says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And here is where the kairos finally takes its full spin. Verse 24, when Jesus said this to his disciples, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Peter, Greg, you, me, we need people in our life that are nurturing the Kairos moments in our life. Every time that heaven breaks in is an opportunity not just to look, watch, and listen, but a time to respond. And our response takes us off the wall of speculation. We're either going to run towards God or run away from him. And that's what we're doing all the days of our life. We're either running from God or running towards him. Repenting uh, to him or running away from him. And repentance isn't about sorrow and tears. Repentance is about change. This is why it's so alarming to us when somebody actually changes, right? Because people change all the time. Like, they change their hairdo. They change their Instagram handle. They change maybe a few words in their vocabulary. They change out some old clothes and some new clothes. People change. But on these deeper things, these kingdom things, these kairos things, it's really alarming when somebody uh, like a Greg or like somebody in your life uh, comes to you and they really change because the cost of change is so expensive. I mean, you think about what it takes to change a marriage, what it actually takes to change an entire paradigm, what it takes to change even a job, to get up from one job, change and leave and get into another job takes a whole lot of effort. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of cost associated with that change that if we don't have the right support system, we don't have the right truth in front of us, there's a lot of reasons and justifications for not doing the change. But make no mistake, Jesus came for us to change. He came for us to look like him and look more like him tomorrow than we look like him today. And there is, like we talked about last time, a lot of opportunities to worship, connect, proclaim, uh, talk about, invite people towards uh, all these things around the kingdom of heaven and Jesus without actually changing to looking like him. But yet he still offers us this kingdom of heaven opportunity, this kairos moment to repent and to believe the good news, to repent and believe the good news. And, and so what we ultimately need in a relationship with Jesus, if we get the definition up here, is not just him, but people around us, repeated rhythms of relationship, of invitation and challenge. Let me break some of these passages down for us as we think about the nature of Jesus and his invitation and challenge. The reason Jesus invites and challenges us into a relationship and an immersion experience is because, listen, the gospel itself is an invitation and it's a challenge. The gospel that simply says, believe in heaven and go to, go to heaven when you die. Believe in Jesus for your salvation and go to heaven when you die is not the complete gospel message. Because the gospel message is not just an invitation to know God and have a relationship with him for eternity. It's to know God, have a relationship, and represent him for eternity in the earth. So the second you hear a gospel invitation is also a gospel, the second you're hearing a gospel 
challenge and call up to go and represent Jesus wherever he is. And so here's a prime example of this. For example, in Matthew 4.19, Jesus doesn't stop and just say, hey, come and follow me and hang out. He says, come and follow me, so much so that you would do what I would do when I'm not there with you. I want you to be a fisher of men. And how many of you know that there was a huge, uh, huge process to go from the beach of Galilee to the mountain of Galilee. Like they had to go through a ton of stuff of transformation to go from the beach of Galilee, which is the initial inauguration of the kingdom, come and follow me, to the mountain of Galilee, which is go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a whole process of invitation and challenge of those three years. Check out this one. He says to them with invitation, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Actually, no, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come, and, come to me, he says. All you who are labor, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the kind of invitation that meets us right where we are, that reminds us that in any day that we are not too far from the grace of God, that his hand is not too short to save, and we are reminded that we don't have to do anything for him to love us because he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. But as we draw near to him, and as we see him, we, we will want to be like him. We will want to change. We will want to repent. Metanoia, change the way we think. And in the full uh, fruition of us coming towards him is not just to be there with him, but to be transformed by him. And in, in just the next couple of chapters in Matthew 16, he will make a challenge statement to his disciples that sounds like this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, then deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Wait, I thought this was, aren't we going to go on the vacation where we just get the hammocks out and look at the palm trees for a little bit and wait till heaven? No, like the invitation is a challenge. When he calls you, he's not just calling you in, he's calling you up. He's calling you up. He's saying, this is your calling, and I love you too much to leave you where you are. I love you too much to leave you, but then I also love you too much to leave you staying there, and so I'm not just going to call you in, I'm calling you up. I'm calling you up into your calling. I'm calling you up into being a disciple, into being a representative, not just a relationship with me, but responsibility to bear my name. So there's a challenge. Jesus stood up and told the woman, where are they? He says to the woman in John 8, the woman that was going to get stoned just a moment before, has anyone come to get in? You know. This is a picture of atonement. It's a picture of justification, not sanctification, just justification, just who you are in him as you come to know his grace and his mercy. He says, he says look, this is, what, this is what heaven is like. He says, I don't hold anything against you, and I'm the only one that has the right to judge you. Where are your condemners? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Condemn you. And then what, look what he says. But go now and sin no more. Every invitation, every invitation was a challenge. It was, an, it was a calling upwards into destiny, into kingdom. Look at the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the very first sermon that, that Jesus ever preached in Matthew, verse 3, opens up with this one. Hey, blessed are you if you are poor. Everyone in that audience, including us, spiritually speaking, but at least uh, socioeconomically speaking, for the people that gathered on that mountain that one day, were incredibly poor. He says, hey, good news. If you are poor in, uh, in, in money, then uh, you can come and follow me and you can have all that I have. You can inherit you know, life with me. But he also says, if you are poor in spirit, you'll be even richer still because you'll inherit the very kingdom of God in your life if you are poor in spirit. But not, what, seven, eight verses down in verse 11. Also, here's a challenge. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsify uh, on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Be invited into this kingdom for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets, so you will be persecuted as well. Another one and last one, Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks and receives. The one who seeks will find and the one who knocks the door will be open. The spiritual economy is simply this. 
It's not an earning economy. It's an asking economy. If you want something from God, James would say, if you want wisdom, you ask for it. If you want peace, you ask for it. You don't beg for it. You don't earn it. You don't fight for it. You ask for it. That's what grace is. It's an ask economy. It's not an earn economy. That's, that's what the message is. But in that freedom, like in that space of I do what I, I want to do, I, I, that the kingdom of heaven is a get to, that I have a freedom, Galatians would say, you're not just free to do what you want to do. You're free to be truly free indeed. And freedom is not just living to do whatever you want. Freedom is living according to your purpose. And that's what freedom, real freedom should look like. That's what real freedom should look like. And so he would say, in that freedom in Matthew 6, not if you fast, but when you fast from the things that God has already given you. That fasting should be a lifestyle, right? And, and do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their face and show uh, others that they are truly fasting. It could go on and on and on how Jesus is continually inviting and challenging, inviting and challenging. I remember there's this movie, and Kyra says to be short on the movie things because I'm old now and not everybody has seen it. Um, but there's a movie called Goodwill Hunting um, that takes place in South Boston. So now I'm going to try and do my Boston accent. Uh, it takes place in South Boston. There's four, four guys that are in the story. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck both wrote the movie. They're kind of like the two main characters. And Matt Damon in the movie is, as the friends say, is wicked smart. And so the whole movie is about a really poor kid from a rough neighborhood who's wicked smart. And uses his smarts just to kind of like hang out in the bars and like punk out some of these Harvard snob people. And that's where we get the whole line. You remember the line like, do you like apples? Well, I got a number. How you like them apples? That, that comes from that if you've not seen the film. It's great. Uh, and so he, uh, he, 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 uh, he, that was a scene that, that comes from the beginning of the movie when he actually like falls in love with Minnie Driver and gets this girl um, instead of the girl going with the Harvard guy. He wins the day and, and slams the number on the window to the Harvard guy with the ponytail. He's like, well, I got a number. How you like that apples? Well, the whole crux of the movie um, is really all about this tension of how, um, how Matt Damon, uh, the, the character Will Hunting, um, although his circumstance and his history and his family of origin has been uh, a chain in his life uh, that has caused him not to go as far as his potential, you know, an aptitude would allow him to go, um, his friends recognize, especially the, the character Ben Affleck, that he is kind of bigger than the life that he's living, that he is called up to something more. Uh, and, and there's this really famous line that kind of ends the whole movie, and if you haven't seen it in the last 20 years, it's your fault. Uh, I, I feel it. I'm at liberty to, to spoil it this morning. He says, uh, you know what I want more than anything, Will? He says, I want to come up to your door and knock on your door to go you know, work on concrete, and I want to knock on your door and find out you're not there. Because we knew since we were kids that you don't belong there and you need to be somewhere else and you're called to something bigger and better than this. I, I butchered the lines, but I hopefully got the accent right. There's something along those lines. <laughs> I, I want to knock on your door and find out you're not there. And that's the, kind, that's the kind of relationship that Jesus had with his disciples on a much more theological and right, higher level than just the kids from South Boston. But that's the essence of invitation and challenge. And this is, this is my challenge, this is our challenge, I believe, today, is that, um, is that if, if, if our relationships are really to steward the kingdom of God, if we are really to orient our life around the message of the kingdom of heaven has come, repent and believe the good news, then our relationships will have to be very intentional. See, Matthew 28, as I look at it even this morning, to you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey you know, all that I've commanded. Um, I think it would hit us in a room like this less about going to make more relationships or going somewhere else, 
and probably a little bit more around the idea of calibrating the relationships that we already have. I wonder if I ask you today, like if you went through a Greg Stewart moment like we talked about earlier today, do you have one? I mean, even one, two, three people you'd consider yourself wealthy, right? Spiritually wealthy that you could actually feel safe with. That are not going to call out the dirt in spite of the gold. Three people. I mean, do we have people in our life that, that even though, you know, nothing in our life looks like it yet, and even though nothing in our life seems like it's in motion or moving or changing or growing, do you have somebody in your life that looks at, at you the way that Jesus looks like Peter? Do you have somebody in your life that can see your identity, to see the gold in you before they see the dirt, to see who you are before stumbling over your knot? Do you have somebody that invites you into life? Because the reality is, is if you don't have somebody like that in your life, then the possibilities or the, the plausibility, really, of us actually repenting and believing are really slim to none. Discipleship is something that, that Jesus, from the very beginning, made a non-negotiable for his disciples. He didn't give them a message. He gave them his entire life. And it didn't just take three seconds. It took three years from the beach of Galilee to the mountain of Galilee of continual invitation and challenge and invitation challenge. We all have people we have on our phone. We all have people we can hang out with. But do we have people that see identity and calling in us and continue to call it out? Do you have somebody in your life that when, when they were to come to you with truth and when they were to come to you with challenge and call you up, that you would receive it not as a criticism but as a call up? Do people call you up? Do they criticize you or do they call you up? Because here's the crazy thing about relationship. Relationship can both, both be the most powerful vehicle to get us to follow Jesus and look like him, and it can become the most powerful vehicle to hinder us from following him to look like him. Because as time goes on, what invitation and challenge began, be kind of blends into comfort and convenience and casualness. And, and all of a sudden, the gold that we see in that person becomes smaller and smaller, especially with our spouses and our dear friends and family. Where all we see is dirt, we no longer see the gold. And we create, instead of a relationship at invitation and challenge, kind of this symbiotic dysfunction where if you don't call out my sins, I won't call out yours. And the church of God waits to be awakened into its full gifting and potential if only it would be discipled. If only we would make the habitual decision to say, we're not here just to hang out. We're here to follow Jesus and look like him. And so Matthew 28 isn't really so much about me going to Africa, but me bringing the kingdom of God here through normal everyday interactions. How can we invite people in such a way that calls the kingdom out of them? Are we intentional about that? Do we see people the way that they want to be seen or see people the way that God sees them? When we speak to people, do we cultivate a kingdom attitude or do we cultivate a convenient, comfortable attitude? It's very easy to get along and just be comfortable with the people in our life. But the cost of that will always be the same. We will always be the same people talking about and planning about the same kinds of changes, hoping that one day God comes down and makes the change for us and never change, to never look like him. But yet God has, has brought this kingdom kairos moment in our midst today. It is today. And it's probably not the Bible study that we're studying. It's probably something in your life that's shaking that you feel like if God were here, he would just remove it. And he's going, actually, you know what? I sent it here. I have it here for a reason because you won't listen until we get to this Kairos moment. What is the Kairos moment in your life? What is the moment where the eternal God is breaking through into your finite reality? He's trying to shake everything out of your hand that you're refusing to give to him. And he's not come to quell the storm. He's come to stir the storm so that it would cause you to lean on him more. Because the success and the accolades, they don't follow you to heaven, but your character, your history with God, 
is of the most precious thing. So he's not really being a friend by removing it from you. He's actually being a friend by coming into it with you and inviting you and challenging you up into who you're called to be. Do you have a friend in your life that echoes the voice of God? Do you have a friend in your life that you are safe enough with? Are you a friend to someone else in your life that continually invites and challenges? I want to look at this invitation and challenge matrix. I want to give credit where credit's due to Mike Breen and all the British people out there that are just so smart. Uh, He also did, actually, I want to put the graph up there uh, with the little line and everything. Um, I think he was the one that did the triangle. I'm not sure. Everybody kind of does the triangle. So um, I also want to give credit if that's the trademark watermark for him. On the top, you have a high invitation. On the bottom, you have low. On the right, you have high challenge. On the left, you have low. The comfy and cozy quadrant of church life, of small group life, of marriage life, is a symbiotic kind of dysfunctional relationship or codependent relationship in which I care, but I don't believe you can. I mean, we would never say that, but that's how we act. Like, you can't get any better than that. (laughs) Like, you can't be like Jesus. I mean, everybody else can be like Jesus. I know Jesus came to make us like him, and I know that he said, you know, we're going to do greater things, but you can't. He kind of skipped over you. (laughs) So so the the residual output of that is just this cozy, codependent thing that I'm just going to kind of keep making you feel good, about where you're at and never challenging you or calling you up. And so if you get five people, the looking glass self says that we don't think we are who we are. We think who the five most important people of our life say we are. And that is not to make anybody a victim. We're all responsible. And anybody can follow Jesus on their own. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that this will very much affect your life. If you are around the five most important people of your life who care about you, but they don't think you really can follow Jesus, then if you were to get stirred in a service like this to go to Africa, it would take about three eye rolls for you to, you know, back off of this. That's what's so crazy is that a lot of times I think the, the person will run through the doors as a new believer and they're running into the church and they're ready to go after Jesus and the church is like, slow down, chill. I care about you, but you can't do this. The high challenge with low invitation is you can do this, but I really don't care about you. <laughs> and, um, and I don't really care about the goal. Then I don't really care about what's, what's in you. I just want to make sure that I tell you the truth to feel good about myself or I'm going to rebuke you because you annoy me. And we're going to get into that, too, of what challenge is and what challenge is not. Challenge is not, I'm going, to cha- I'm going to challenge you because you annoy me. Challenge always comes from, I see something greater in you, so I'm going to call you up. I see the gold in you, so I'm going to help you wash the dirt with the truth of the, of the word and the Holy Spirit. And so a high challenge with low invitation is very low uh, relationship and very high in religion. And we've all been in experiences like this, high challenge, low invitation relationships. You have a bored and apathetic culture, which is kind of like a passive-aggressive, like, I don't really care, and I don't really believe you can, so I'm just going to kind of leave you over there in the corner because I don't really want to mess with you. Too much, too much drama, you know, your neighbor, the coworker, whatever that is, you're just kind of off Jesus' grid. I know that Jesus loves everybody and grace meets everybody right there, except for you. So low invitation, low relationship, and low challenge. You see how the gospel refuses all three of these other quadrants but one? The gospel says that any person that you've seen, C.S. Lewis would say, is a divine being that is destined to follow Jesus and look like him. Every person in this room in interaction has been designed to live in this place up here. It is the empowered place where the Holy Spirit is continually catching me where I am and calling me up into where I should be. What would it be like to have a high invitation and high challenge culture? What would it be like to have somebody that is seeing us as we see them for who they are and who God has called them to be and not allowing them to stay there, but continually by the washing of the word and the spirit, challenging them up and calling them up uh, into the very uh, stature of Christ. 
These are three notes before we go uh, on invitation and challenge. The first one is this. Uh, Invitation, these are nots and yeses, nos and yeses. Invitation is not people-pleasing, but it is people-promoting. So invitation, like, really isn't just like, let me give you a compliment sandwich to, like, buffer out what I'm about to say to you. Invitation is like, no, I see you. Like, I'm not just trying to be nice to you and keep you, like, passive. No, I see you, and I'm calling you up. Peter, like, he wasn't lying. You're going to be the rock on which I build the church. And he preached the very first sermon in Pentecost, and 3,000 people came into it. So he's not just joking around. I see you. Invitation is not enabling, but it is empowering. So it's not just saying, like, yeah, God loves you, and just keep doing what you're doing. Like, invitation really isn't a different wing of a different bird from challenge. It has challenge within it. It is empowering. An invitation is not flattery. And flattery is a very manipulative tactic of the enemy. We definitely want to stay close to that. Like, we're not just puffing people up. Invitation needs to have an edification to it. Challenge, as we make three notes on this and close. Challenge is not be like me. It is be like him. So challenge is not let me measure you against who I am. It's let me talk to you about the image of Jesus and the identity that he's calling you to be with. Have you spent time with a person or is somebody spending time with you enough to know who Jesus is calling them to be? Uh, Secondly, challenge is not um, based on annoyance. It is based on intentionality. So it's not just like, get out of my face with this. That's annoying. And so that counts as my challenge for the day. It's like, no, I'm challenging you up into who God has called you to be. And challenge is not an opinion. It is based on the word of God. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.